welcome back to an all new installment of the Super Metal Brothers podcast, where we study the discipline of fire and demise. I am Super Metal Brother Matt. And I'm Super Metal Brother Dan. And I've got a virgin rose to break. Uh, actually, I've got a, a confession to make, to be honest. It's the uh, Arcsphere, the Elusive Collective album. Uh, that was actually a retro review. I didn't realize that. I think I thought that album came out before... Uh, that didn't come out in 2017, but they actually, the band Archfear did release an album in 2017 and it wasn't the Elusive Collective. So I did get that one wrong, guys. That's a shame because we rated that quite highly. That was going to make top 10. <laughs> it was. So I think, to be honest, I think we might actually review the latest Archfear album that actually did drop this week. Um, I think we have some people that might want to know our thoughts on it, seeing as we put up so high the Lucid Collective. So it might be interesting to see how they back that up with their latest release. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, sometimes... I mean, th- this band here had a lot of attraction lately. I mean, the, the lead singer wanted to fight... Was it Tim Labardis? Whatever the guy from... Yeah, he's having uh, a dig. Uh, Tim Lam- Lambesis or whatever, you know. Uh, it was a bit of fun in jest, you know, but... What we want to talk about first, I guess, is uh, what we're doing on tonight's show, Danny. Yeah, so this time we're actually not doing a retro review. We're actually doing a review of a pretty much retro band, man. But a band which has had a new member, which has got Matthew slightly excited. And that's Arch Enemy's new album, Will to Power. We've been building this thing up for at least months. This is months. So when, when Jeff Loomis was dropped as the new guitarist for Arch Enemy, we've been talking about this band almost religiously ever since, you know. You'd know our thoughts and feelings of Nevermore, uh, Jeff Loomis' last band, by the retro review we did. Yeah, that was a retro, full retro perspective. We did the whole back catalogue and everything, so we'll, we'll fall into that review and big high praise for the, the man. So we're very familiar with Jeff Loomis. However, with Arch Enemy, I do own a few albums, Wages of Sin, for example, and I've been familiar with their works ever since then but not religiously getting into it because I find that, uh, you know, well, we should talk about that a little bit later. I guess we're getting a little bit ahead of that. So we talk about that Arch Enemy review later. Uh, We're also talking about tonight is the front men and women of heavy metal, some of the favorites from the fans, but mostly we can talk about tonight um, some good guys and bad guys. Really, this was Mm -hmm. created by a conversation from the guys from Queens of the Stone Age. Talk about how villains can be, from the heavy metal and the rock genre, you know, and we're going to talk about some of those tonight. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I guess first, Danny, we're going to talk the news. Straight off the bat, though, before I get into the news, we need to talk about New Dead Fest. That's actually coming to Adelaide very soon, Danny. I think it's in two weeks from now. Yep, not this Saturday, next Saturday. So after the um, AFL Grand Final, we're still cheering, celebrating, keep that energy going to the following Saturday in um, Blith Fowler's Live. Yeah. We have a... Uh, what, all day medal, fantastic. That's right. And even if your team loses in the final, uh, so any of our Melbourne fans out there, or some Adelaide people who like Richmond, uh, nevertheless, don't worry about it because when you're sad, medal sounds even better. So why not go and drown your sorrows with a blast beat? Oh, definitely right, man. I mean, that's the best thing about medals that no matter how you feel, good or bad, it always makes you feel better. Even, right. Yeah, not worse, but better. No, it's, it's always just, better. It's an amazing thing. Yeah. Always going upwards and twirling, twirling towards freedom. Simpsons references <laughs> will never die on this, all right? <laughs> I know how much the Carsons love it, so uh, they deserve to hear it, right? Yeah, exactly right, yeah. Uh, first actual news story, though, for this week is Satyricon's frontman questioning whether AC and DC is still relevant. Now, when we clicked on this article, Danny, we thought instant clickbait. What is Satyricon talking about? looking and actually doing some research, which again, for the Super Metal Brothers, is something that we weren't prepared to do until today. We actually went a little deeper in this article and found it actually had something a lot about it. 
It did actually. It was kind of interesting because satiric kind of what like death metal, I guess, or black and death metal. Yeah, something like that. From that. Norway, more, more black. Yeah, yeah, more black. Yeah, from and they came to Soundwave once, which was great. And ACDC never came to Soundwave, so ooh, controversy. Mm. Anyway, yeah, he's saying the relevance because he has a feeling ACDC pretty much released the same album for like the last whatever four in a row, and and get one or two good songs out of it. So like, where's the relevance in then trying to change the sound? Artistically, they haven't got relevance, but what they do is have branding relevance. And I think like Kiss, like Metallica, Megadeth, these guys, and let's be honest, like Disturbed, for example, talked about mm. them, Meshuggah, again, Lamb of God, maybe even to a degree. These, all these bands come to mind because of the branding they have on the heavy metal genre. But you could argue that some of these bands, uh, if not all of them to a degree, have lost relevance as far as the impact they've made uh, to the heavy metal genre. Meshuggah, to be honest, had a most recent impact though, so they that resonate more in the minds of metalheads. But surely he has a point, this guy here, Danny. Yeah, definitely right. I mean, saying like, what is classified as relevant? Just people turning up to your gig in great numbers is that considered you still being relevant? So it is interesting. I mean, again, it's like different type of field. If you're going from the artistic point of view of these guys, like yeah, you don't really you're not really affecting my sound. You're not really changing your own sound. That's not. But if you're going to like the normal Joe Blows who have impact on their life. Well, yeah, you are relevant to them because they really want to see and they really get enjoyment from your music still, even though you might not have released a great album in a couple of years. And I think, to be honest, it actually encompasses both. I think with metal, sometimes we do lose that, yeah, it is about the music and most of it should be about the music, but metal has uh, an arching brand into artwork, to live experience, to all these other things as well. And as long as you're keeping people entertained as well and relevant, like to put it in that quotations, in the people's eye... I guess then that's enough. Yeah. The great thing about this story was that Satyricon, I mean, first you tax ACDC. That's not Australian, mate. Right? Well, you, uh, <laughs> no, you can't do that. You live in Norway. You don't even know Australia is. Anyway, the big thing about that article is they actually, their album, I think, this year or last year, came in like number one in Norway, their own country. And he said the greatest thing about that is that you have like certain radio stations and TV shows where you like, are forced to play your music because you are number one in that country. Yeah. So you're having like, like, I guess here, like Nova, whatever, some music video hits. Well, no, no, we don't play that music, but you have to. It's, it's what your country wants to hear, so that was pretty cool. That's interesting, actually. Yep, uh, we're talking about the surgically implanted headphones. It is now a thing. Danny, we clicked on this article, and it looks a little strange. Basically, you've got this cartilage thing in front of your ear. It's going to have some magnet put in there or something, you know, and you're going to hear stuff. But the quality surely would sound a little bit like that, comp- you know, that compressed sound you get from a mobile phone app with someone recording their thing through another mobile phone. So yeah. I couldn't imagine it sounding good. But like if you drive through a tunnel or something, does it get all crackly and weird or if you're in your bathroom makes a weird buzzing yeah. sounds continuously That's a feedback. Right. Or you go by your fridge and like you get stuck to the door. <laughs> and you never, <laughs> ice cream, you hear this bang. Yeah, and you never want the first like model of any technology because there's so many bugs the quality is shit yeah. once it's implanted I don't think you can get it out of planted you know yeah that's right exactly you go you go to like you know you lay a car, a car dealership and all of a sudden you're getting taken away you know dies at the age of 33 due to being fixated to an exhaust pipe you know I think the great thing about this is like one of those good like um, government you know tinfoil hat people like you, you go <laughs> sleep in your bed and your government's just feeding you stuff through your earplugs you're like oh you become like one of those sleeper like assassins it's funny because it's like 
you know that saying that I got a song stuck in my head, but this guy literally will have the song stuck to his head. Yeah. <laughs> the song's right there. But like, how does that, again, like radio, you, you walk past cars, you pick up radio signals in your earphones. Imagine if we're trying to untangle earphones, like what the ears get like all tangled up and you have to like undo your ears. I have no idea, but uh, you know, just stay away from your kid's train set because I think eventually you got yourself some earrings and yeah. you're hearing that all day. Not cool. Not cool. Uh, but what is cool though is Marlon Manson's ex-wife. Apparently, Dita Von Tees liked the old foursome and uh, Marlon Manson apparently learned a lot from that. Yeah, these were like ultra good foursomes because she would literally like go through his like a crowd and scout like chicks and bring chicks back with him. So it was like it was a three on one type thing. So Marlon Manson loved it but he said one example was when she brought back two chicks but one was really hot and one not so much and like D, um, Von Tees was Making out the really hot one, and Marlon Man's like, "Well, hey, I'm, I'm the rock star. Where's, yeah. where's my hot?" But then chick? he start, then he start like making out with the ugly one. She's like, "Wait, what are you doing? Yeah, You're yeah. supposed to watch me make out with that." So you got this jealous girlfriend who's making out with all the hot chicks, and you're just sitting there going, "Well, that was pretty awesome." Yeah, yeah. That, that's a classic move from like Dita Von Tees. Like she's using her rock star boyfriend's rock star thing to like scout chicks out for herself. That's like, you know, yeah. that's pretty. That's pretty funny. That's like the level of. Um, Ozzy Osbourne's Mr. Sharon Osbourne, you know what I mean? Where Sharon Osbourne just makes money off of uh, Ozzy. This guy, uh, Dita Von Tees, was just getting laid from the boyfriend. So there you go. Yeah. Well, hey, why not use it to advantage? Oh, that's right. Uh, we haven't talked about people hating Donald Trump for a while, so let's just it's throw true. his sacred rights in there. Uh, apparently, the front man thinks the guy's an embarrassment to our country. Uh, you guys voted for him, so um, I don't really know what else to say about that. Yeah, I guess it's been a while since someone complained. So <laughs> I, think, I think there must be like a rule that you have to have at least one article every two weeks or something. I would like it more if these guys would kind of channel it into a song and let the late, like let these magazines go out and be like, oh, this guy's actually got a song and it's really good because it pisses him off. But um, it's pretty much just about like having a guy just basically farting into a microphone at the moment when it comes yeah, to these but articles. These journalists must be so like it must be either really easy to be a journalist or just very boring to be a journalist yeah. because they're like either they're like editors saying or like you know you must talk about Trump or the journalists are just like I'm just gonna talk about Trump because I can't be bothered being in depth. Yeah, so let's talk about someone who actually is releasing music and that is Warrell Day. You'd know him from Obituary. No, sanctuary. sanctuary. That's right, Sanctuary. I looked at you because I'm like, no, I got this one wrong. Um, but most importantly, the ex-Nevermore singer. But this article says Nevermore slash a Sanctuary, implying that Nevermore actually isn't breaking up. Wow, okay. That's, um, well... It said it. It said Nevermore slash. Maybe because they're so lazy trying to think about Donald Trump, they forgot about the ex part. Well, in any case, they must have the news on something. So I'm assuming... and. I had to. I went out to then decide if this was true. So what I did was tag Jeff Loomis and Warrell Dane in this post and said, "Bring the mothership back home. Get together. I'll make the tea and crumpets." And right. as soon as I did it, Warrell uh, Dane's his actual thing was unfollowed. Like you know, you can tag the name in it. Yeah. All of a sudden, the name was no longer tagged. Conspiracy much? <laughs> We're like just stalking him too much, are, man. Are aliens stopping Nevermore getting back together? I said mothership. Something's going on. Is Facebook sentient? What's going on, Danny? No, I think you're just you're stalking him too much. You're like trying to get a restraining order out of you. So I said, I'm already kid. Ah, oh, shit, get him away from me. He must be listening to the podcast a lot then. Yeah, and the other thing as well is like it's solo. So it's not even Sanctuary or Nevermore. It's doing his solo stuff. Which, yeah, yeah. Um, I was thinking about whether he's going to bring on to it. I think he did play once with a guy from Soilwork. What's the good and the bad album? I heard about two or three songs off of it. But he's actually getting the guys he's been jamming with the last three or four years since 2014. 
good uh, little bit of uh, camaraderie. It's pretty much a rock-inspired thing, you know. But Warrell Dane is a good singer. So, uh, more of that, please, I guess. Mm. Yep. Windsor Play have a new track called a Never Alone. It's very symphonic. It's got a lot of keyboards and stuff onto it. And these guys must listen to the guys... Um, Who's that power metal band we reviewed? Sabaton. These guys must oh, have okay. to Sabaton more than us because did you hear that chorus? No, I, I kept like just skipping through parts of the song and I wasn't really getting drawn in at all. Yeah, it's it was kind of like the intro is actually pretty ominous and it's actually like kind of sounding pretty like sad and I didn't mind it. Then the song starts and it's pretty decent, you know, but the chorus is um, unusual for, for, for what I've heard of them, you know. Isn't this like one of those super groups, Wings of Plague? Nah, they they basically like... You know how like some people have gimmicks like um, they they wear corpse paint or they have like you know sing sing about dragons and stuff like that. You know, there's still stuff from that Tolkien guy who's been dead for whatever. Well, these guys have the classic hot keyboardist, so they're getting gimmicks. Oh, have, really? Have really hot. No, I kept like, there's forward. a bunch of guys, and they get this one awesomely classically trained pianist who's hot as shit. <laughs> so um, they, mean, they mean to do it. I think it's deliberate now because it couldn't be... Before, it was just coincidence. You don't have that many like piano solos in an album. Yeah, yeah. But it's actually not too bad. It's kind of like that melodic death, death metal thing, you know. But this, uh, this yeah. track isn't too bad. So if you're a fan, it's just that, wow, that Viking chorus. It came out of nowhere. It was like just getting like, you know, getting uh, patted on the ass and then getting smacked in the balls. It kind of felt weird. The film clip's all about like a priest trying to exercise like a demon, like an exorcist like. Yeah, that that, uh, that chorus didn't really feel like the exorcism that was coming. It felt like I was about to go pillage something, which maybe that's the whole point. Yeah. The, the priest was trying to pillage that girl's vagina. <laughs> I don't know, like, I, I, I didn't really care too much because I was more like... Uh, go back to the keyboardist. Yeah, go back to the keyboardist. Yeah, I was thinking, is, is this keyboarder hotter than the other two? Um, Corey Taylor on Feud with Chad Kroger. He's the one who effing started it. I'm glad to know that in his ripe old age of at least past his 30s, he's still using his 12-year-old excuses yeah. about the um, Chad Kroger incident. And then he's still bringing it up, man. Literally, do... Does his stories have more clickbaits on it than actually bands? Because this must be the reason why metal magazines keep asking his opinion on stuff. Oh, yeah, it and must then, be. And then yeah. we have to talk about it. Yeah, either his promoter or whoever does gets him all these interviews, they, they're doing a fantastic job. And these articles, these like magazines, online publications, they must be loving him because you're right, they must get so much foot traffic because what Corey Taylor says. Yeah. And this whole Nick back Corey Taylor thing must have like just all bought them like, it won't be Ferraris because you won't get that much. Maybe more like Priuses. Like, yeah, so you've got because you've got two people. There's just two markets here that listen to, to that must click on these articles. One, people who love Slipknot and really care about what Corey Taylor has to say about the world, its current events, even maybe philosophies around music and that. And other two is basically the Super Metal Brothers, which is basically want to bitch about him for the next you know ten minutes. Oh, I thought you were going to say number two is people who hate Nickelback. That, <laughs> that would have been the whole world. Yeah, loves to not hate Nickelback. That's not the whole world. So maybe that's why I have so much clickbait. Uh, it's it's possible, man. It really, really is. It's just that these Nickelback guys don't seem so bad. Um, they do get a bad name because they appropriated the metal guitarist and use it for their own reasons. Maybe that's enough, or maybe that's because they get to have really hot singers or you know, girls and that. They, you know, they've taken into a market of being rocky enough, but uh, being on a road run a label. I don't really know. We, we, we can't work this out. So uh, good, good for Nickelback and good for soil work, I guess. Uh, soil work? 
Uh, so, no. Yeah, no, good for soil work. Yeah, yeah. Good, for, good for soil Steve. work. Yeah, yeah we love We're losing work. drummer, guys. <laughs> Dave Lombardo feels sorry for younger drummers good who rely drummers. too much on technology. Now, he's talking about, obviously, how powerful the way is of production, where we have these things called sound engineers, and back in the day, it was really about recording and mixing and mastering, but now it really is engineering a band to make them sound good. So, and then basically, these days, you can literally be someone who's never touched an instrument, they, and you can play every single note separately, and then the sound engineer will build a house out of it. So, kind of like a pop singer. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, it will sound mechanical. It will sound a little tedious and annoying. Yeah, it will sound like an Elysian album. But <laughs> <laughs> Any chance, any chance. <laughs> but, um, but more importantly, it's, uh, it's where it is going the, the right now, and it's happened to pop music a lot. Uh, metal music had a leg to stand on back in the day because you know back in with Ronnie James Dio and stuff, these guys would jump in a room with a tape, and then when that thing was recorded, if you did it two or three more times, the thing would basically melt, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. So you can only record over it so many times. So, yeah. oh, but what they able to do, they would like to cut bits of that tape and stick it to the yeah. other parts. Yeah. But being such a time-consuming process, it wasn't in your best interest to be going to the studio and be a shit musician, right? These days, however, man, you can learn the song in the studio. And that's what he's trying to say. This is what Dave Lombardo is saying is that, no, what you should be doing is getting the guy to put the click track on, working his way up to that speed, and then taking that, that safety net off and getting him to play or her to play so you can hear the organic thing. But these days, it's like, eh, that's hard. Sound engineers now have the ability and the technologies to get them in really fast, get the best performance out of them in a very short amount of time, doing very short amount of bars, and they can send them on their way. Yeah, and when they have to play live, oh, well, that's, that's another problem. That's not the sound engineer's problem. <laughs> that's right, you that's know, another problem. Uh, then all of a sudden you get the Dragon Force problem where they go on live and then they get booed because it's like, guys, did you even practice these songs? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the answer is no. No. Well, yeah, I mean, technically, double kick is overrated. Just one, one, one pedal's enough. You know, double kicking. That's, <laughs> what are you trying to do? You're trying to show off. It, it is a little bit like that. Um, but I guess the uh, other side of it is that we're talking about uh, Fall Alluding now with the guitarist Scott Carstairs and he discusses about vocalist transitioning. So people leaving the band, you know, maybe not being good enough to after their experiences in the studio. Or maybe it's just a simple fact that this pays about as well to uh, not even feed your junk food addiction. Um, what are we talking about though with Scott Carson, uh, Carstairs here, Danny? What's, uh, what does he have to say about vocalists? I shouldn't really read that whole article. Well, I'll, I'll fill you <laughs> Thank, in. Thanks, man. Basically, yeah. what happened was his old singer left, and they asked him why. So this this guy who's interviewing must be as bad as bad felt as bad as if the possibility of uh, Symphony X were to be retired for Danny. Hey, 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 hey. Let's not hey. let's not theorize things unless hey. it happens, right? Don't 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 start with me. <laughs> so what happened was the singer left from uh, Fall Alluvia, and they asked the guitar- uh, guitarist what happened, and he said, well, "I could kind of see it coming." But I also couldn't see it coming. So he kind of knew that was gonna, this fallout was going to happen. But when it does, you're still a family. You're still together for a long time, you know. And then what happens to the kids afterwards? Well, we don't know, you know. That's, that's up for them to decide. Um, so what do you think, Danny? You think the end of the day with uh, the changes and the end of the day, do you think um, getting someone that sounds similar to the band would be a good idea or just whatever the band thinks for the next cycle? Oh, again, two massive questions there. I mean, like... People want to have a similar sound, so when you do the old songs, it still sounds quite similar. That's but then right. a, new, a new vocalist also means you might be able to change direction of how you're writing. It's, you know, it's again it's tricky. We're going to cover this a lot more later on with Arch Enemy. Um, so we'll go on to our next one with uh, our metal head of the week. 
the obituary drummer braves Hurricane Imra's wrath to save injured kitten. Now, I did read this article as well, Danny. Uh, is he not only a saviour of all things metal, but also a saviour of cats? Oh, that's amazing. This story is like, yeah, the um, hurricane was coming and the guy, I think it was his neighbour's cat or a little, like a kitten, like, and mm. they left it behind and he actually, he, he did a full hog. He went out like with some traps to like corner it. Mm. He had like, and because the cow was a bit injured, of course, it was trying to run away from anybody because, you know, it's trying to protect itself. Yeah. And so he actually had, like, surrounded the bushes. He had a flash out of the bushes. As soon as it flashed out of the bushes, it tried to run across the driveway. This bloke here literally ran across, dove over the driveway with a net and caught the cat and was able to bring it back to the That's vet. right. All in the meantime, with bad weather, rain, uh, winds that are, like, getting catastrophically bad. And he's could because he couldn't go to bed that night knowing that that kitten was going to be stuck where it was, unsafe, and uh, it was actually like a disabled cat. So even more of a backstory for this poor kitten. Yeah, and, and normally like drummers, their timing's poor ass, but his timing was spot on to hit the, <laughs> the catch that kitten. I think he brought his net, he brought his rope, and he brought his uh, metronome. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, it's like drummers, unfortunately, how much kit they have to bring. And he had traps and he had nets, he had everything yeah. he had to bring with him all the time. See, so. he got all that to work because drummers can do one thing really well and that's multitask. Yeah. So if it, was, if it was a vocalist that would have gone, he would have gone there and he would have called someone else to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not getting dirty. <laughs> the bass player, or oh, it's a ghost. No one would have seen him. <laughs> he could have walked up to the cat and the cat would have been like, what? why am I floating in a hand <laughs> <laughs> It's always your wizard, Harry. Oh, wow. Um, so thank you very much. Um, we're going to talk about Sully Erna's uh, Godsmack. Now, he believes that they're going to lose some fans being more commercial. Now, this was kind of brought upon a couple of months ago because when they were in the studio writing at the time, we talked about this, right? Now he's come out and said the same thing, right? Now, how much more commercial can Godsmack get? I don't know. Because I've heard them from them their first started to lately, and I'm a bit like, well... Unless they're going to come out with a, a, all, the, all the instrumentalists now who will drop their instruments, be a five-piece singing band, basically the boy band from the 90s, gel their hair, bleach it, and uh, talk about girls for, that are 15 years old, how can they get any more commercial? Yeah, exactly right. I, I already don't know. I, I, maybe he's like living in like a delusional world. So now we're still hard and heavy. Like my vocals are still a bit of gravelness to it, and we still have the distortion. That's nah, a heavy band, you know? Uh, unless they're literally going to go away from rock music altogether... I guess the best thing about doing it, though, is that don't say that we didn't warn you. So the fans, even though they'll be upset in that, it's not like we're Suicide Silence where it was like, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to be doing this and like go F yourself. These guys are like, oh, we're probably going to see you. But, you know, thanks for giving us the money and the time and energy to seeing us live when we're doing, you know, rock songs. But, uh, yeah, like, sorry, a new jazz record now is a tribute to... <laughs> To, to all those uh, guys who died from, uh, you know, meth and, um, and cocaine. Yeah, that's right. All those famous jazz musicians. Yeah, exactly. All died at 33. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Broke. <laughs> um, what do you think, Danny, though? We've really, we've really got to be honest. Like, will the fans leave? Or are they, have they been prepared for this for the last 10 years and they're just on the same yeah. ride now? I, really, I don't really see how they're going to lose fans. I think they're just getting good, like, publishing work, getting his name out. They're pumping a new CD and... Getting people excited by it, but I can I mean, can, you are commercial. I mean, your rocks, you're not that aggressive. Your, your lyrics aren't that well, actually, I don't know your lyrics, but I don't think the lyrics should be that heavy. Mm. Well, I want to finish on now the last story of the day, which is the Diane Van Gilsberg departure from Zandria, right? Now, we talked a little bit about this last week. It was kind of in between the band saying, you know, she just wasn't fit enough, rah, 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 from her saying that she wanted a little bit more control, money, she wanted to be 
uh, get more involved, I guess, in the band and kind of see her fruits. Again, we will never really know the whole truth, but you can get an idea where they kind of fall with. And then the day there was a fallout and it was horrible. The end. Or is it? Two vocalists came out and talked about the train that is Andrea and they don't really have much to say that was positive about the band, although they did say quite a lot, more than we could probably cover in this week's episode. It was amazing. They did like full, like, you know, opinion pieces, journal entries. They're like pages and pages of writing and of like, entries. And I couldn't read all of it. Nah. Yeah. So let's paraphrase, Danny. I guess the short of it is the band has a bunch of egos. They're all trying to run the ship. And this thing will be destined to change musicians until the very, very end, I guess. Well, yeah, they've, they've had five singers in 20 years. And it doesn't sound like a lot, but it could be that those singers maybe were too nice and polite. They just stuck with it for a while. Or maybe they were contracted for, for like at least one album cycle. Yeah. So maybe they got caught in. But yeah, it looks like uh, the next person who goes in that band really mm, is going to have to change Look, something. Everyone's a chef. And the end of the day, if everyone wants the, their opinion to be the gospel or the, the code for the band, something's going to fall. Uh and there's no one to rule on top of the ship. So even if everyone wants to put their part in, there's no one on the top there just to kind of like guide it and take a little bit from here, a little bit from there and kind of indirection it as a manager. And that's what they were saying as well is that the manager there is for the band, not for the band to run it kind of thing. So there just seems to be this displacement of the whole entire thing. Uh, I would like to, hopefully these bands can sort it out. But then again, I don't really listen to much of their albums. So yeah, I guess, exactly. <laughs> well, like, what do we care? Yeah, they also must have like a good um, scout to get more and more like female lead singers because I don't think they're that common. Well, in the in the heavy metal thing, goth metal, it feels like, yeah, you've got your, your guys who are playing musical instruments and that. And then you're incredibly talented, gifted classical singers. You come from some... Uh, conservatorium that polishes out supermodels I don't really know how it works but you know they're not hard to look at yeah but eventually that pile's got to run out I mean, it <laughs> just can't keep going can it <laughs> maybe it's coming from the mothership without talking about Nevermore <laughs> That's right. you know it's all part of the same plan I don't really know um, but if but if this magical place exists I guess it's called Sweden or Norway yeah one of those two so back in the day basically what happened was Vikings went to these places, had sex with all the hot women. They procreated and made more hot people. I don't know. Isn't that, how, isn't that how it works? That's right. And the Vikings, when they went to other countries, they took back the hot women with them. That's right. Yeah. So Norway has all these hot women, right? So from all that pillaging and all those people getting taken uh, you know, from their own will, and now they've got all that talent and hotness for the whole country to deal with. That's that's a that's terrible, Matt. I think we should go to Norway, and we should. Start We're not pretty enough to go to Norway. We, we should start a Have plight. you seen this hair? Even the guys have got nicer hair than the girls no, that no. live here. No, no. So uh, whatever their secret is, it's like maybe it's you know heavy metal. Maybe it's Maybelline. Who knows? Or maybe it's pillaging and thundering. <laughs> All I can say is uh, good luck to Zandria and good luck to Super Metal Brother Dan with his departure to Norway. Yeah, it'll be nice. <laughs> I had a, we had a good run here, Matt. I really appreciate our time. All right. Podcast aside, let's go to our podcast question of the week. This week, we thought we'd change up the question and ask our fans out there who their favorite front man slash woman is of all time. I should have said vocalist, but uh, I didn't. I thought what I wanted to do was talk about the villains firstly. Is like, what are some of heavy metal's greatest villains as musicians, right? But I thought that might be a bit tricky um, so we just kept it pretty simple. So Danny, let's talk about some of our fans who are their favourite front men and women are. Yeah, definitely. Okay, the first one is Amy Carson. Hers is Christina Scabia for sure, which is the lead singer of Lacuna Coil. 
Uh, amazing voice, great stage presence, and you can see she really enjoys what she does. She always shares heaps of her life on her Facebook page, on her interests, and what they do touring without getting too personal. Um, does talk about her other half. Uh, seems like she gets along with all other band members and artists too. That's true, because we remember talking to Andrew Hogue, and he reckons she's like one of the most genuine people he's ever talked to. So. Yeah, it's wild. Yep. And for someone who's in the mid-40s, she looks pretty fit and healthy after years of touring compared to most metal performers. That's oh, also the, yeah, think, she the likes Italian, the jeans. Italian jeans. Yeah, as Italian well. jeans, yeah, that's right. Assume my brother Matt Dan. Italian. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, Josh Rigby. I think Bruce Dixon is very hard to go past. The guy's amazing pipes, amazing stage Dude, he's presence. pretty small. I reckon it's pretty easy to go past him. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just saying. He's not, he doesn't look that. He doesn't stand out like his look. He's no. like normal bowl card. And yeah. Anyway, uh, has no lack of personality on a mic between songs. Easily one of the greatest and always will be. He also has the amazing talent of wearing some real shit, making it look like it doesn't give a shit. But at all, but still comes across as the coolest mother effer in any stadium he is in. Uh, Ryan would take the same here against Bruce Dickinson as well. Um, yep. Yeah. He loves how he gets the crown involved. Uh, Jacob Fluffy Slippers. Uh, also Bruce Dickinson. Uh, can perform such caliber for so long, over so many shows, even through F3 and throat cancer. Nothing can stop the man. Ben Saunders. James Hetfield. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, such a good singer and always energetic at shows. But he said low at the end. So is that like lots of... Like, not can't be love. Lots of love for yeah, Metallica? Yeah, must be lots of love for Metallica. Yeah. Lots of love for James Hetfield. Okay. This wasn't... Yeah, I don't know. Okay, yeah, so... Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, uh, and Russell Hanna, uh, Maiden are awesome, but I'm going to throw Rob Halford into the ring. Started listening to my brother's Juice Priest tapes when I was about 10 in the 80s. Cool. No, that's pretty awesome. I think now what I want to do is kind of encapsulate what they've just said and talk about what is the what makes a good front man or a front woman, right? Now, I think uh, charisma and a willing to connect with the audience is really, really good. Now, first one that comes to mind as far as charismatic and engaging would be Ronnie James Dio, I think. At the time, he was very approachable. He seemed very knowledgeable. Um, He always liked to chat. Uh, And now, I know as for a fact that many of friends of ours or cousins and family who met Ronnie James Dio when he came to Adelaide, we'd we'd be happy to have a beer with him and talk, you know, and just get him to sit down with him share an ale and I think that there comes a long way of someone who's genuine a good human being right so that's one thing I think who else comes to mind as a good, as a good front man in that sense maybe Randy oh, I was going to say Randy Blythe but we did talk about Lamb of God's uh, very poor performance with their meet and greet this year yes who else comes to mind well I was, I was very surprised with was uh, Rob Flynn from Machine Head like, yep. we saw him uh, at Soundwave and he was great like between songs he's like just like so genuine and so caring and nice to people I reckon Phil going? Anselmo would be an awesome cat to hang yeah. out with yep. he seems like a you know minus aside uh, the uh, his uh, delivery, <laughs> delivery around racial uh, tensions or just you know certain faux pas jokes yeah, he seems like someone who's down to earth and seems pretty and that's another thing about the charismatic side of someone you know um who are some now good musicians that kind of embody the embodiness of good and or good natured? Because I'm thinking now, this is what I'm thinking about with Bruce Dickinson and stuff like that. There's a very much a play or a story when Iron Maiden play live. They're fighting Eddie. You know, you've got that big zombie guy. Yeah, yeah. They're talking about victory. It's very patriotic. You know, they're waving, waving around flags. So they're in competitiveness of, you know, getting together, being a lot of pride in their work as well. But um, I don't know, something about that feels like they're taking on the, like, the bad things in the world kind of thing. It'll be like what Power Metal does, you know. Like, it's always about they're fighting demons or dragons and rah, rah, rah. And they put themselves as very heroic, mm. you know. 
Right. The good guys from a Lord of the Rings movie. Yeah, that, that's that's true. I would say about Padme. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So um, who are some singers? Uh, other ones that that work in that kind of context. Ah, uh, it's funny because I mean I haven't really seen too many power metal guys like live in, in Australia we don't really get too many of those guys come through I mean we saw Russell Adder from Symphony X and he was great like he talked between songs he's very like nice to the fans very, yeah he sets up each thing like a play like he'll yeah, give you yeah. a backstory to songs and he will kind of talk you through it that's good for idea yeah and same as um, the guy from Flesh got Apocalypse like he did the same thing but he's more like between songs he puts it's more like a theatrical more yeah like a it's more of a play yeah it doesn't yeah. really connect with the fans but he tries to tries to put you in an atmosphere and try to create the atmosphere for you so yeah. more of a stereo storytelling more opera yeah. type based um, so again I mean most most people see it live like most of these metal performances they, they, they try to engage with the fans to agree like yeah. between songs they want to talk and stuff but some don't like I see Jesse Lynch from Killswitch he'll just like bang bang song 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 and then the end thanks guys see you later and that, yeah. for him that's it And yeah. but also some people want that some people don't want talking like if you go to you two with Bono, he just doesn't shut up about politics. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah. It's like if we can read your blog if you want to tell us about how you think about the world, but when you've waited 10 years to hear songs live from your CD and you know they could have played the whole album, but they play three tracks so they can tell you some diatribe about how they don't like the Bush administration or whatever, like, so what? Yeah. You know, um, you're a musician first, journalist second, right? Yeah. And there are people like um, Dave Grohl, who's a great frontman again. He's yeah. like, a lot of energy, a lot of fun. He gets injured, breaks his leg during the show, he comes back. And yeah, plays the rest that, of the show. that encompasses, of, that encompasses all the things that are good. Is that you are so unselfish that you'd risk your own health and well-being in order to do the right thing for the fans. Mm. And seeing that being rewarded, and they do get rewarded. I mean, they are definitely making serious Metallica money. Yeah, and then the other side's got like the lead singer of like Dillinger Escape Plan, and his like whole thing is just he puts on like a performance, and you're like, holy oh. shit, he doesn't stop running, stop moving. He gives you 100%, 100% the whole yeah. time. He will risk his physical well-being. He actually puts himself into physical harm, where most yeah. people try to avoid it, even guys like guys from Food Fires, even though when it does happen to them, they'll persevere. Yeah, yeah Dillinger Escape Plan's like, nah, we'll put ourselves into peril for your entertainment. They're literally like bondage. Uh, but without the sex and <laughs> death kind of thing. Yeah, they're just like jackass type. Yeah, thing, yeah. exactly. Um, now, we talked about some of the guys who embody the good nature of life, but I think the thing about this question is that we can have front men and women that are also use controversy and use their place to be the good guy for metal, but by being a bad guy to society. Now, I want to say, for example, the Marlon Manson thing, where it was like he was perceived as a Satan. He was the Antichrist. He put, and he put himself up on that pedestal. A lot of controversy surrounding it. But he wasn't a bad guy, but he sure as hell looked like a bad guy. And that was enough for parents in that to scream bloody hate from the windows in order to push their kids right towards him. You know what I mean? What, what other way of getting kids interested by making parents absolutely hate him? Exactly. I mean, if he wasn't doing like forces for his like, hot chicks and stuff oh. he was also like the the reason that people was it committing suicide and oh that's think, right you know the shooting the, 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 yeah. the, that's right those whole the whole high school shootings they were blamed to him and because the kids were playing doom like that mattered you know that was that was the reason that triggered these kids mm. of a lifetime of oppression and the narcissistic attitudes towards uh, themselves but again um, Marlon Manson's one of them right I want to go into deeper the whole black metal imagery where it's the takedown of Christianity across the world or even just critiquing it you know this is really going to 
set up aside from the whole thing with the, the what they put himself over as you know obviously Christianity and Catholic nature is obviously it's good it's about being unselfish rah, rah, rah. but they the black middle thing can twist it and showing how it's kind of this word of oppression and stuff like that or just sheer hatred for it they just don't like it and they believe the strongest should survive kind of thing and um, and this brings it down to people who just use the imagery of dark imagery like Jimmy Borgia Emperor um, like Sabbath for a while. Sabbath for yeah. a little bit, you know, Cradle of Filth. They would use dark imagery and that would make them to, to the front men from that, for example. Like Danny Filth, he always wears fucking contact lenses, right? And he's always in like this makeup. So he's always, almost always in character of being a bad guy, looking like a vampire. Yeah, he not, just, not to mention sounding like one as well. Yeah. But he always is, because Danny Filth is not even his real name. So yeah. he's always in the character. He's always in that character, right? Alice Cooper, for example. Another front man who's very kind of evil looking and rah, rah, rah. You know, he does this whole thing where he gets beheaded. He's a horror show, you know, and he's, that's, I would say being a, a scared towards people isn't being exactly heroic, but it's a good gimmick, you know? Yeah, I mean, again, it's, you know, it's a good front man for entertainment point of view. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, then you have guys who are just like terrible people. Like, you know, you go Varg, for example, yeah. or like Gull. These yeah. guys are just. And, yeah, well, uh, I don't know if that makes him a good front man, but again, we're talking about yeah. relative. That was what we were talking about at the start of the show, is that being in the public image, and that is a way of getting in the public image, is by being a controversial figure as well, you know? So I guess good front man or woman doesn't necessarily mean um, being a good guy, but it means being relative, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, yeah, yeah that, that, that's fair. I mean, it's right, it's how you want to judge it. Like... Like Ozzy, Ozzy Osbourne at the time sounded evil as all hell, you know, and they were tackling things outside of what other people were talking about, a lot of drugs, you know, a bit of religion, all that kind of stuff like that. Hmm. Yeah, true. I mean, I guess it's funny because you're right. When you're like metal in those bands, you're right, you perceive that you should be a certain way and act a certain way. And that's right. On stage, that's probably fair to say. Some of these guys are probably a bit harder or a bit more extreme on stage or in interviews and as a persona to make themselves feel like they suit for the character. But right backstage, you're like nice and they save kittens from like rain events. So that's right. It is quite interesting. Yes. Right. But it's also what people want to get from the front people. If they, if they want to look like an idol, they have to follow or is it just a guy they want to connect to or a girl they want to connect yeah. to? Yeah. The guys from yeah. ghost, there was so much mystery and, uh, uh, surrounded that band, you know, to a point that that made him to a good front. The, the, the lead singer, Papa Emmis, whatever, was a good front person because he, they came out and did this whole entire thing where it was like the satanic church kind of thing. Like it was the Sunday mass done in an hour, but it had, a t- had that twist to it, you know? And it was engaging. That's engaging for people. That's a good front man experience because it's like you're giving an experience to the crowd, you know? Yeah. And that's, and that's unusual. You know, the, the whole point of the front man or woman is to draw in the crowd and get them excited and really get absorbed into the music. Yeah. But it's not just the singers though. Like you have front men or women like um, Steve Harris from Iron Maiden. Like he's yeah. the front bass man, but everyone wants to see him. That's and right. really sometimes Bruce does a really good job getting direction. People people also want to focus on him. Now we talked about goodness from a lot of men right now. I want to talk about what makes female singers in heavy metal at the good and the bad type so iconic as well. Now I want to talk about the good ones first. We talked about Christina Scabia as well, right? Well, what about some of the other female singers that work really, really well? Well, I don't mind the one from... Uh, so, obviously, Kitty right now, they kind of came out and did their whole thing, right, of separating themselves. New metal was great, right? But they literally had that twist of screaming and that the singing as well. But the goth metal scene has, like, for example, Nightwish, Floor Janssen, 
massive vocals. Her beauty is surpassed only by her talent, really. And what is her talent, Danny? I mean, yeah, she's, a, she's a great singer, of course. There's no question about that. She, she's been like on Dutch TV singing like operas and arias. She's a clinic. She's a master class, isn't she? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but what about some of the other bands we're thinking about that aren't Nightwish? So we've also got Zandria as well with Diana. Again, well, obviously X-Singer. She was very pretty. But she was also, again, one of those people who can just lay it down. Yeah. Uh, Unleash the Archers has a, a vocalist who is incredibly powerful. But also, she's incredibly emotive you know, in her body language and very polite. Um, yeah, Aramanthi, I guess. No, they're, like, they're, they're quality singers. I mean, yeah, singers that's right. in general, like in metal, they have to be good singers because otherwise you're not going to listen to them. Yeah, and I think the only one that really comes to mind of being the villainess kind of thing, the bad one, is for the wrong reasons, unfortunately, was the Otep singer. Now, we've covered her a few times and it's just her ability to try to victim blame and put herself over. And that's the only time that makes her a bad front singer, I think. But I think at the end of the day, there is a place though for heavy metal with these um, a lot of these people uh, that can be good and bad and good front singers and um, no matter what sex they are whatever they do, but hopefully we only have really touched on just a very small percentage of them to get the ball kind of rolling with you guys and see if uh, you've got anyone else that you wanted to mention and talk about with us would be really cool. Yeah, I mean we've got a front woman in the band we can review to this time, so that's a. Yeah, yeah, so thank you to the guys who did answer our podcast question this week, but I do want to f- now move on to the much-anticipated CD review. Arch Enemy is the name of the band. Will to Power is the name of the CD. This album released in 2017. I know that because uh-huh. it did come out this uh, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, this is an interesting one for us. We talked about this a little bit before the start of the show where... It has the second album now for Alyssa Gluss, the ex-singer uh, from that... Antagonist. Pool, from the Antagonist, thank you very much. And the first album with Jeff Loomis on it, he did tour with the War mm. Eternal album, yeah, yeah. but he did not feature on that EP. However, he does sure feature on this <laughs> does album. Does he feature? Well, <laughs> does he feature enough? We'll talk about in a second. Uh, this really is the baby of one Michael Amert, the guy with the red hair, if you've seen the band. He is the guy, it really is his baby. He's been doing this for 19 years since the inception, which is what, 98, isn't it? I can't even remember. Yeah, yeah since the Crows met a grand final. Oh, Whoa. there you go, making it relevant for the footy. Um, before we're going to get into it, I'm going to read out his quote because it really gives you an impression of where, the context of where every single Arch Enemy album is strived from. And here it is. This is coming from the man himself, Michael Lammer. The greatest challenge for me is to keep improving every aspect of the compositions and arrangements. I am always searching for the perfect Arch Enemy song when I started the band in 1995 and I had the the idea to create the most heavy melodic band of all time. Now that should give you an encompass between what he's done since 1995 to 2017, right? Wait, is he searching for that great... Arch Enemy song? Yeah. Well, I guess like every artist, if as soon as you do it, then there's no point doing it anymore. You've made the song, it's done, um, do something else. So straight off the bat, obviously, like I think all good musicians, he's, he's acknowledging the fact that he's in this for a certain reason. Now, we're going to review this album two parts. We're going to review this as non-biased. <laughs> the ex- ne- like, yeah, Nevermore uh, Jeff Loomis fanboy that I am. And I'm going to then do cut it off the, the, this uh, section. And then I'm going to talk about why this album does what it does for me as a Jeff Loomis fan. So let's start 
from the very top of this album of what I thought, what I liked, what I didn't like. And I want to get your obviously thoughts on this too, Danny. Now, this album does sound very much like an Arch Enemy record, would you say? Oh, look, again, I haven't been too mad for an Arch Enemy, but if you go by what Amit's saying, where he wants to capture like heavy melodic together, yes, yeah, that's, that is correct. He does try to capture the heaviness and melodic together. I mean, it, it's pretty much like he has the standard like staccato riffing through the verse, which makes it a bit more like aggressive and more, uh, you know, attacking. But then when it comes to his like verses, it's more like higher tone, changes of key, um, like, yeah, more happy, more bright yeah. There's sounds. The melody yeah. on this album is poignant in every song, right? Because even when uh, there's the heavy metal riff in it, generally they don't stay there the whole time. There's yeah. always a chance where it goes to this neoclassical section yeah, yeah. or these open chords with a simple melody over the top. Even that Gothenburg thing, like in track eight, for example, um, it's got that feel where it's like, okay, it's familiar. You know this sound. It was done before. And uh, and it's very easy to create strong melodies in that kind of environment there. Um, the one thing which is apparent not only on this record, but all Arch Enemy records is, I think this guy has a very strong sense of what notes fit over chords. So I think when he does choose melodies over sections, and it can be anything from track 10 to, 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 to like almost anything on this album, it really feels like he can do a melody over chords. I think he sometimes gets stumped where it like feels like he, there's break, there's a lot of breath sometimes in it. And it's kind of like, uh, I don't know if, because when you hear Jeff Loomis' soloing and when he does melody leads, you really get a feeling how organic his lines are. But I feel like this other guy with Michael Emmett, they're very much planned and everything feels very methodical and prearranged. Whereas I think with Loomis, he has a much more creative flow about him. That is not saying it's a bad thing, but this album feels a lot like when he goes into those choruses with leads, it's pretty much like a da-na, da-na-na, da-na, da-na-na, na-na. Oh, you know what I mean? Um, so that and it doesn't just stop there it's, it, it is riffs as well it's kind of like you know it's, it's that kind of writing which is on every single Arch Enemy record and for me it feels like it's, it's good I know the riff's good like, I know that intro to track that Death Metal intro track 11 is awesome or the, the single that they're all cool stuff, but he sometimes the writing just kind of it yeah, just kind of hits. Jarring. It's yep. jar. It does jar. Yeah, if you go to like uh, uh, song number three, then it goes to the solo. It's, it's it just cuts to the solo. There's no the transitioning at times. It's, it's right. It's too jarring, and not just that though. Like even sometimes they want to be like a bit more like more instrumentation on there, like using your pianos and stuff. Sometimes it just doesn't fit and just doesn't belong. Like track four and track ten. Like track ten, the intro is a bit off, and then. He used like a guitar entry, but at the end it goes like with a, a piano interlude. But the piano wasn't used for any of the other song, and I wasn't even using the intro. So it's not like you, you're, you're coming back to the star, yeah. what a lot of people do. It's just like, oh, we're just going to have a, a soft piano outro. It's like, but why? Why would yeah. you do that for? But the combination, again, this is the thing, like, I kind of feel like I'm outstretching one hand, but slapping him in the face with the other. Because he does do a lot that's good, and I can see why there's a popularity to this band. Because the riffs can be pretty heavy at times, you know? Uh, they can be very catchy. So you've got your death metal riffs on the album. You've got your power metal riffs on the album. You've got your um, Gothenburg-style influence on the album. Uh, you've even got your ballads, slower, methodic, like not, slower and more emotionally connected pace as well. 
so it's all on there, you know. Um, the thing is, it's that when it's awesome, it's really cool. You know, some of those riffs are really cool. The leads can sound pretty evil and stuff. Mm. But at its worst, it just kind of, like you said, it can be jarring. It can be kind of stopping and starting. It, uh, it feels like something else should be there or a riff not almost complete to where I'd be happy with it, you know, where yeah. it's like, uh, if ne- and I hate to do it, but if Nevermore did that riff, for example, if I compared a death metal song from Arch Enemy to Nevermore, I could go like a Obsidian Conspiracy track and compare it to one of the song- albums on this uh, one, like the second track, for example. Uh, you know, the quality of the musicianship of guitar lines is just... There's a little bit more, just a little bit more fleshed out, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I mean, sometimes you're right, the guitar licks can be quite nice, quite tasty, and like a yeah. nice bit of pinch harmonics there, or even the, that sixth ballad when it builds up in a chorus, they use nice guitar tones and effects to help emphasize points. I think the biggest problem is with drumming is just a bit too like standard rock beatish, yeah, quite a lot. And sometimes if, you, if your guitars are kind of weakened a bit, you can just make it up for a bit of the drumming, but it just doesn't seem like they've right well, yeah, drumming maybe. The one thing I've noticed is Michael Emmett's playing. In general, it doesn't seem like it seems like his songwriting has matured a bit and he's gotten a better songwriter. I do find that this album is pretty more, more engaging than some of the other stuff I've heard before, but his soloing is not as interesting as what he used to do. I mean, back in the day with songs like Ravenous, he was playing, you know, quavers or, uh, you know, those eighth notes or whatever at a fairly high speed, but it seems like he's pulling his playing back and it doesn't make for a very exciting. Um, adrenaline pumping experience with some of those riffs he's playing but when Jeff Loomis comes in he has no problem sh- showing a masterclass of what the song actually does need if you're going to write a death metal song and play seven notes through the whole thing it's like well why? and that's the thing it really does feel like he wants to be more melodic in that I don't know if he really wants to pull, do all that stuff anymore maybe he's m- matured past it or something but I don't feel very excited when I hear his solos you know I don't even find yeah. it sound very cool but they do sound very memorable and that's another problem I guess it is the, the lines are very much like you will sing them after you finish with it but um, I was never like wow that was like really badass moment yeah no, I agree with that and I feel like the album's a little bit too long as well it's like, it was a long album actually. yeah it's like uh, it's 53 minutes but you take away the um, cover at the end it's like a 50 minute album but it just seems like some of the songs again a bit same same as in because they're not dynamic enough like you have they're, they're long songs like the, the ones I made film clips for they're just a bit too same same for like 5 minutes like, yeah, that song could have been a 3 minute yeah. song same the impact. groove is basically dead and dead and it's Pretty much that. Yeah, I mean, know? they try to, some songs they try to like add in like a little breakdown, a little like half beat section or something to kind of make it a bit more dynamic. But it sounds like, yeah, it can, it can be done well, but some of those songs are just, no, you, yeah. can, you cut out a bit of it. It's but at fine. the highest, the riff, a riff can sound really awesome. You know, a, a melody at time can sound really good too. It just, when it's not, when it's on fire, it works really well and you, you're like, I get why it means great. And when it's not, it's just, it just sounds a little empty. And that's just the style he wants to write. He wants a more memorable, more, um, catchy experience and I think for that I think he does enough to, to know that it works he, he's classically inspired um, you know sections uh, in his choruses especially um, they seem to work really or in intros to a degree towards the back end of the album uh, it works you know it, it, it's the right note to play over that chord because you know in your head where it should go and he goes there and it's like great you know it's very familiar and it works really well so I guess that's talking about Michael Amitz writing because it really is his show, right? Doing the guitars. The drumming on it is solid, but like you said, for some of these riffs, man, he needs to do a lot more work and maybe that's just not, he's not given that freedom. Um, so let's talk about uh, Lisa Gullis right now. Um, let's talk about ex-antagonist, now arch-enemy screamer. 
screams on every track but one. Is this the first time that an Archenemy vocalist has sung on an album? I don't know because I didn't listen to War Eternal that much. Yeah, I, I really don't know, but I think it probably could be. I've never heard of it done before, and she had, I, I didn't know she had actually had a melodic voice, but look, I didn't actually mind her melodic voice. So I thought it was, I mean, that track I didn't mind as well because it, it was the different tracks. Like, instead of just having like fast, heavy grooves, at least they try to be a bit more motive with it and try to have like a slow build up to a power chorus and then yeah, break down. The, the sixth track on the album is, I guess, yeah, it's a ballad. Um, the problem I find with it is that I don't really like it in Archenemy too much. Um, and I'm not alone on it. And it doesn't want to sound too petty, but um, uh, it, it doesn't have... Fun times, it does work. Cause sometimes Archenemy songs have that lightness about it where I think she fits really well. But some of that death metal stuff, man, I think Angela just has it over her. And I think that where it kind of lacks a little bit. As far as the singing voice goes, I think I did like hearing it, how she can bend in between notes. I know she's doing Agonist with like songs like Thank You, Pain, and that's where I became familiar with her the most when I heard that kind of stuff. But um, I do think sometimes she found, it sounds like she has her nose closed in some of those inflections. Um, she, and a poor thing, maybe she needs to, to sing through the whole song because I really thought that song was one of the weaker ones off the album. And I find that it was all down to the chorus. The intro was cool. Then she does that whole Pat Benatar thing. She was like, yeah, like yeah, all this attitude, I like, like I thought, I thought it was a good bit of like bit of gravel to her voice. Yeah. Uh, you know that slidey shit, like the guitar had no frets, and she's there using one of those capo things. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, just find a note somewhere. Yeah. Except like your nose is closed to the whole thing. <laughs> but then that chorus, man, it's, like, oh, it's just a pile of balls, man. Nothing happens. It's just so contrived. And I don't feel anything. And actually, at that point, I'm stopping the song because it's like, there's no more emotional weight. That scream over the ballad just doesn't work, man. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it did. Because I thought, because yeah. they're kind of layering the instrumentation on it and make it a bit grander when the, to match the singing. I thought it kind of worked well. I don't know. Maybe, nah, maybe didn't I didn't do it for it. me. Yeah. I, I, I didn't really like the song too much. Though. Like, the intro was kind of nice. Um, it's just those notes like, da, 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 da. Da, 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 da. You know, it was like very exercise like from the guitar to that solo. I mean, yeah. And I hate to put this guy in the bus, but if you're going to have Jeff Lewis on the album, you're going to show where your weaknesses lie. And um, I'll go back to that in a sec because we have to talk about Elisa Gloss. Uh, I generally find that she's okay for the fit, but there's sometimes where it just needs a little bit more. And I think the biggest problem I find is that this, I can hear it quite clearly in this record singing and some of those lyrics are pretty hammy. Oh, the, the lyrics aren't fantastic. I agree with that. When I try to go through it to like get that little paragraph I sing, yeah, those lyrics aren't fantastic. Um, look, she does some things well though. Like she does have a bit of like dynamic range that with, gets a bit like growly, a bit deathy and with her scream. And it does can match a bit of the instrumentation at times. There's one part where like her, her went a bit evil when a minor key change and that, it does it does yeah help it out so she does try to match it with it and but you're right some of the some of the lyrics are just are just then there's no subtlety in the lyrics and that's yeah. the problem you like it's just like i don't like you yeah because you, i don't believe in heaven i don't believe in hell um, like that, that kind of stuff war is bad yeah revenge is keeping yeah. me alive or some crap like that it seemed very uh yeah it didn't seem very interesting and uh the problem was then i could actually hear it a lot of the times these metal bands i don't even know what they're saying but they believe it's such a great performance. Um, and I guess, you know, we have talked about this girl a lot and what, what she did with the agonist wasn't very nice. And maybe that kind of lingers with me. But I do, I do acknowledge that sometimes she, she, what she does is quite interesting and quite good. 
But um, as a fit for Arch Enemy, man, I would have gone with someone like the girl from Ginger, for example. I don't know if this girl was the right choice. Uh, Looks-wise, maybe. Um, but sound-wise, uh, I'm just not getting it. I, I just think that um, just that style that she brings, that scream isn't... Um, yeah, it's, it, I guess it's okay. It's just like, again, it's a bit like the songwriting where it's like, it's fine. It's, it does what it needs to do, but meh. Yeah, another thing I found in like, this album was the um, like track, was it 12, that the last official song. Yeah. Like a weird, unique string kind of, again, classical ending, which again, didn't really fit with anything else. Yeah. But then straight away goes into like, pretty much like a punk cover. I don't know who this band That was is. unnecessary. I don't yeah. know why they did it. Yeah. it it's, um, I'm paying homage to maybe it, but it didn't need to be on the album. It takes you away from maybe the, the, the atmosphere they were trying to set. I really doesn't feel like though this isn't a concept album or anything. It is really just a bunch of tracks thrown together. Yeah, but it just was it was just too jarring again. Like if you can try having a soft ending of your last track, well then at least try to add in another like interlude track or break to to build up the track thirteen. I know it's a cover, you won't play it live, but it just it just didn't fit the album. Yeah. yeah. So well, I'll talk about a little bit about these guitar solos and stuff like that, and then I'll guess we, we'll wrap it up the first part of the section, then I'll talk about the second part of the section, okay? So, um, there's obviously the soloing on the album is two parts. You obviously got two guitarists now, and they're working alongside each other. We talked about this how Amit said that I can play stuff that Loomis can't, and Loomis can play stuff that I can't. We would strongly disagree with that and consider that Jeff Loomis can play everything you can play and you can probably play half of what Jeff Loomis can play. And that's just the reality of the situation. Um, and what Jeff Loomis brings to this album, Danny, what does Jeff Loomis do for each song? Uh, yeah, honestly, I don't really know. Well, yeah. I'm going to tell you because <laughs> okay, I know exactly good. what well, he does. Apart from track 10, they kind of do like trade-off solos, but that's kind of the only part we can No, he doesn't do a trade-off solo. That's all oh. him. Is it really? Yeah, when it goes, no, 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 that's all Loomis, no. that section. I, I would oh. put... I'd put serious money on that. The ending of track two, that's his solo. And there's a couple of others that are, are his stuff, that are his work. Track eight, there's the one at the start of that song. He does a solo on. Um, it's a nice little like, licks in track eight. Like, it's a quick little... Yeah, yeah, those cool licks you're hearing, yeah. friggin' Loomis. They sound like Loomis. Loomis. Yeah, yeah. The end of track two, this is the thing. All right, here's the thing I want you guys to understand right now. It all really right. feels like sometimes... This album's equivalent of a golf course, right? So imagine your favorite par three or par four golf course, right? And Michael Lammett is the guy who's putting tees on every single hole. And on top of those tees, like, you know, start the hole, he's putting balls on it, right? And for certain tracks, he's hitting the tee, you know, the ball off the hole, rah, rah, rah. But when Loomis comes on, he's putting those tracks into the hole. Like every time he comes on, he's making all, this, all that setting up that he's doing, he's knocking this thing into the hole off the fairway. Like it's going straight in, it's solid. It's like, that's exactly it. That's the shot. So Happy Gilmore style. Like yeah, one and yeah a half he's ball. Happy Gilmore to... Shoot McGavin. Yeah, shoot McGavin. No, 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 no. <laughs> like, uh, like Stevie Wonder. Like oh, they're, they're, they're your two opposites, right? And I, I don't mean to be like, do that as a, you know... But this is really the thing. You can re I really know when Loomis is playing those solo, and they are like so exciting. And the best track, track ten, is the antithesis of what I'm saying. That whole track is building up for the third minute. When he drops that solo, man, it is perfect. And then he follows with one of the coolest riffs on the album with that really cool power medley, like dan, da, 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 da. and then he does that thing where he stops the riff and then he starts it again. I'm like, nah, just do something else. Like, just keep it going. And then she just comes in with these really lame lines and you're like, ah, oh, whatever. It's, it sounds decent enough. Um, so that's the thing. It's like the separation now of having the, the guitarist and when Jeff Loomis 
eventually leaves because it is it is going to happen. Um, he's too talented to be stuck in something that he's not getting expressing his thing across. Um, someone will have to fit this band and do those solos. So no. you you you're gonna you're gonna need all the same playing live. Huh. No, no, no. Michael Amit said he can play everything Dreamers can. So no, there's, <laughs> there's no, no need. There's not a no problem, problem here. I understand what's your problem, Matt. <laughs> so I guess what we're gonna do now is talk about why, as a personal level. So if you so before we get into that, sorry, Danny. Let's just finish this part off and say who we recommend this album before we go into what I really this album doesn't do for me, right, or whatever. So overall, this album is a very, is a solid album. Features some very strong moments with more or less what you like about Genomi or what you hate about Genomi. It's more of the same. It's got a better guitarist on it now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, if you didn't like Angela Gosso but loved Alyssa Gluss, well, you get more of her and she finally gets to branch out a little bit with the ballad album song. What else do you want to add to that? No, that's pretty much correct. I think it's a good album or a great album. There's nothing like really made me stand out. So I've got to listen to that song again or that track again. I really struggled for me. Um, again, maybe I haven't played through it enough times. Maybe nah. the more you play it, the more you grow. Nah. But it wasn't really... Again, it's, it's one of those albums like... Uh, there's another big band we did this year, I think that like The Haunted, where you had like some good riffs and good sections, but nothing again which was solid throughout. Like, nothing exciting, yeah. nothing that kind of threw you off your center or whatever. But the thing was, this thing is marketed so well that it's making money everywhere. If you look at them, it's made like number one here, number two there. Yep. First time it's made Australian charts. It's yep. dominating. We're talking like third in the German album charts, third, uh, third in UK, second in Finnish, uh, sixth in Austrian, first in US hard music charts, first in iTunes metal charts internationally. And in Australia... 26 first time charted in Australia. This thing is selling and all the marketing of getting Angela Glass, Goose, whatever, Jeff Loomis, um, promotional stuff they're doing with their label, the YouTube stuff, the imagery on Facebook, all this stuff has worked so well in their favor and they've done so well to market it. And the album itself presented is satisfactory. It's not offensive. Actually, me fans are going to love it um, or hate it for those reasons that they've liked and bought every other album or stopped. Um, uh, the changes with Angela Gloss, obviously with uh, War Eternal, well, if you didn't stop listening there, you won't stop listening here. And the addition of Jeff Loomis can't really upset anyone. <laughs> you sure about that? Let's talk about <laughs> why I will never probably listen to this album ever again. The biggest problem I find with it is that, and like Daniel, you added a really good point. You said as much as Jeff Loomis is, actually he's using Jeff Loomis, Jeff Loomis now can use the arch enemy thing. He is now part of one of the biggest heavy metal bands going around and he has that now in his back pocket. For branding, that's going to work for himself. He wants to do a solo project now. He probably will sell more albums because he's now he's an arch enemy. A little bit why uh, maybe Thinger went to Megadeth, you know, with uh, Verbulen, you know. Just imagine how much money and recognition you get paid. So if you were to branch off as an independent artist, as a solo artist, you could then get those money back, right? To yeah. do what you really want to love doing, and that is being a musician. Exactly. Right. I mean, because people who like that enemy might not know Nevermore so much. I mean, you think they would because there's melodic elements to it and stuff, but basically the same. Doing. But the yeah. one biggest factor is they're singing differences. Warrodain, power metal, soulful, um, very macabre atmosphere. Yeah, very angst. Uh, the riffs are very similar. They do ballads, they do death metal, they do groove metal, rah rah rah. But uh, with obviously Angela being mostly screaming now. And moving away from that to style of the slidey guitar thing. 
Um, so that's the one thing in that's saving me from completely being devastated. Now, the one thing I want you to understand is that how good of a writer that Jeff Loomis is, not just a guitarist, because I think he's starting to get known for being a hired gun. But anyone who's bought Planes of Oblivion or any Nevermore album, mostly The Godless Endeavor or Dead Heart in a Dead World or Daniel, your favorite dream in Neon Black, right? You get, uh, uh, you get the idea that this guy can write tremendously good songs, diverse songs, and all memorable with none of that complaining about songs not sounding quite right or things sounding empty or whatever or, or, or lacking a certain emotion or being too clinical because it is incredibly natural for this guy to write great songs, to write great guitar solos, give a great live presence as well because he's quite engaging and very, um, uh, he's very uh, open with his body language and very good. So the biggest problem I have now is that Obviously, he he wasn't allowed to get his stamp on the Arch Enemy brand when it really needed it. Arch Enemy needs another writer. Yeah, oh, that's again, that's probably fair for that whole part. Where like, there's there's riffs which feel like they could go somewhere, could be more made more dynamic, and they didn't. So there was there was probably a need for more input because. Yeah. You're right. Like when someone writes by himself, they're kind of limited to their own imagination. And Jeff's done this on his albums. He's actually gotten other musicians uh, like Steve Smith, for example, um, or some of the guys like Tim Calvert or whatever. And these guys have jumped on the records with him and, they, and Jeff has given him the chance to write the songs to help create an atmosphere or a vibe for an album. Each album feels like after the very early works, a context or a conversation over a broader scope. You know, there, There's a lot of flow to it. Uh, now, the, the, Michael Emmett's reasons are his own. He could, I could argue that maybe he didn't want to have Jeff Lemus write songs because one, it might take away from his dream of being able to write Arch Enemy songs because that's his idea. He wants to be a better writer. Well, he couldn't play it because let's be honest, he, he can't give the performance that Jeff can give live with some of those licks. I don't think he could do an obscenium conspiracy or do stuff like godless endeavor tracks you know like the like expect to the last track for example um but the biggest problem i have with all of it is that jeff loomis won't be around forever he will eventually have to hang up his boots and i am so inspired and so driven to hear him write and release music all the time and i hopefully that in him he wants to be an artist who writes and releases music all the time and michael Lambert stopped that right it's the way it is. We will not know what Arch Enemy could have sounded like, but I think it would have sounded amazing. Given the opportunity to Jeff to give him the chance for one album only, to give him the chance to express himself, to give Arch Enemy the kick and help them, each other, be better musicians and grow together. We just got more Arch Enemy and for that... It's the exact same reason why everyone on their page who is critiquing it is saying the same thing. Jeff Loomis is underutilized. He needs to go back to Nevermore. Yeah, and maybe that's a great thing. I mean, like I've said, that's my the great thing from this is that Nevermore has all this talk and all this hype now about it because of the fact that Loomis is being underused and people say no his name and all these people are whinging about Loomis being underused. Then more people say, oh, let's check this guy out. You're right. Maybe the amount of Nevermore traffic has gone through the roof. And that's why I've recently, um, Loomis said there, there could be a Nevermore reunion. Yeah. Listening to this album, every single track, when I get, when I'm listening to it objectionally, like trying to do for Super Mill Brothers, I can enjoy it. I can understand things about it. I can see how melodies work in that. 
when I'm taken out of it and realize that Jeff Loomis is not being used or he's being pushed down that little bit just for you know the reasons that Michael Lamb has given us, I get really upset and I actually get depressed listening to this album and it actually makes me feel sad for every wrong reason. Normally, when I feel sad, taken out of like my section into a song, that's for a good reason. It makes me present of an emotion that maybe that brings me to a time in my life where I felt sad and like that's a great piece of music. It makes me kind of connect with it and maybe I'm like, you know what? Maybe I didn't do enough in that present time to do the right thing by someone or for myself or for someone else. This album makes me feel like, how could you, man? You've sold out one of the best musicians and you sold yourself out in order to feel comfortable, in order to be safe. And for that, this album is one of the worst albums I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, that's very strong. And after this, after this review, I will, aside from maybe those solos to listen to for inspiration to drive me to be a better guitarist and to get more ideas to hopefully mind sort, I don't think I'll ever want to listen to this album ever again. Yeah, yeah. strong words, but that's how you feel, man. That's how I feel. And um, I know I'm not alone on this. Um, and I will feel better about this when Jeff Loomis leaves or is given the chance to express himself as a musician and he needs to give him that platform somewhere because this guy, you cannot deny a talent and such amount of beauty in this world to be squashed. It is literally like this rose flower coming out of the ground and someone putting a black case over it. It's still there. You know that it's going to bring so much joy and love and passion and life to so many people, but you're just like, but my rose garden is better. I'm like, why can't we have both? Like a rainbow in the dark, Matthew. Oh my God. (laughs) So that's how I feel about this album. Very heavy, I know, but I just cannot listen to this album anymore and I hate doing myself the disservice of doing it, so I cannot wait to put this album to rest and chuck on some real nevermore. And in the words of our genemy, fuck Jeff Loomis. (laughs) (laughs) That penis cake meant everything. I saw right fucking through it. They gave him the dick. Okay, now, in the words of our genemy, I mean, this is probably the better lyrics I could find. (laughs) From their single... If you want the world, use your mind. Take control. Feel the strength. Rise from within. If you really want it, the world is yours. Yeah, from their single, the one that made the uh, interesting... One that didn't rip off their film clip, you know, with the whole sand thing in the background where a good old Andreas Lopez realized they've used the same backdrop for three of their film clips. This one here was in like a spaceship kind of thing, whatever. It was oh, yeah, some bullshit. Yeah. Not really interesting. But with that, we are the end of our Super Metal Brother podcast for this week. Uh, on a new night as well a new night this time yeah that's right we're coming to you on Monday I hope you guys like the Monday thing we're going to hopefully cure your Monday-itis with some Super Metal Brothers it might make things worse we don't really know uh we will when we find out the stats. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully you guys like Kaya out there are still uh, listening to us and the Carsons. And, uh, and we've got a lot of fans actually. We're getting a few more plays and uh, you know, still waiting to see that uh, Volbeat episode get toppled over. Yeah, that's But it fine. seems to be yeah. uh, making more headways than uh, we could possibly have imagined. But thank you guys for that. Yeah, and share with your friends. You know, it's no harm in just getting into like our page. You might enjoy it. Who yeah. knows? And with that, I'm Super Metal Brother Matt. And I'm Super Metal Brother Dan. We've been the Super Metal Brothers. Thank you guys so much for listening this week. We'll just catch you next week as well. Yeah.